3: Hello, and welcome back to episode 21 of the Red Sox On Deck podcast, part of the Over the Monster podcast network. I'm your host, Bob Osgood, joined, as always, by Shelly Verstrate And Shelly, that uh, Garrett Richards extension that you've been asking for for months looks like uh, <laughs> has a good chance now, huh?
2: Uh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I am... Yeah, this, this last Garrett Richards um, outing was... Uh,
1: at luckylandslots.com available to players in the US excluding Washington and Michigan no purchase necessary VGW group void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply
2: yeah i i'm i'm ready to kind of like transition him to the to the bullpen like yeah, yeah so uh,
3: and just a heads up for everyone Chili's dogs are a little grumpy today i think as a result of that start as well so <laughs> anything you might hear in the background But uh, we're very excited to introduce our guest for this week, uh, the director of scouting at the illustrioussoxprospects.com, as well as the co-host of the Sox Prospects podcast. You can find him on Twitter at Ian Cundall. Ian Cundall,
0: thanks so much for joining us today. How's it going? Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, You know, I've really enjoyed uh, listening to you guys too and uh, following Over the Monster site, obviously, I think it's because I've been on some of the other podcasts and everyone obviously reads all your stuff all the time so it's uh it's nice to finally get to chat with you guys and gals
1: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess Haha, in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky
2: i never win and tell
1: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Absolutely, yeah. And what better time to have you on than right after the MLB draft, um, minor league draft. We did a wrap-up episode two weeks ago where we covered the picks 1 through 20, some more in-depth than others, and a lot has happened since that episode. Um, So I think we'll kind of jump right into that. Ian's also going to talk a little bit uh, about the depth of the Red Sox system, what's changed this year, a couple of players that all three of us are fans of that are up with the big league squad now. Uh, But we're going to get started with Marcelo Meyer, Uh, signed last week for slot value uh, $6.664 million dollars. Um, I know it was a surprise to us. uh And in going into draft day, who were you expecting the Red Sox to get at number four? You know, if you had to have made a prediction that morning, uh, and was there even a chance in your mind that Meyer, who was number one on a lot of lists and quite a few mock drafts as well, uh, could end up with the Red Sox?
0: Yeah, it was it was an interesting draft day because I remember I was talking to to a few people um that day of, and his name was just not someone I was even considering. Just Wasn't even in the, you know, the rearview mirror. There was no thought of him being there because it was kind of, I think, just kind of a wide assumption, just assumed that he was going to go first overall. And if he didn't, he would go third. Right. And then as and so it kind of was setting up that we had uh, the chaos, you know, situation for the Red Sox would have been if Mayer, uh, Meyer excuse me. Um, Henry Davis and Jack lighter all went. And then I, I would have had no idea what they would have done. Maybe they go under slot. And that was kind of what I was expecting to happen. Since it it seemed pretty like Texas was going to take lighter at two. And we just assumed Meyer would go one. And then that would push, or excuse me, Meyer Davis would go one. And then the other one would go three. And then when, that didn't happen, and Davis went one. It was like, oh, this is interesting. And then the rumor started that Detroit was going to take Job, and then it was, oh, wait, we actually have to write stuff off about Marcella Meyer, who's someone <laughs> we didn't really research or do much, you know, work on because why would we? <laughs> you know, he was supposed right. to go first, and so it was interesting that yeah, like we pre, uh, uh, someone at what some people at the site they they pre-write our uh, we pre-write the you know. Uh, articles about the first round draft pick and usually when you're in the 20s it's a little more difficult this year we thought oh there's no way they would draft someone that we didn't write up and of course they did so uh it was it was a very interesting day and I don't think honestly it couldn't have fallen you know as soon as the, it was clear the Red Sox really wanted lighter I think that was pretty widely reported and as soon as that was off the table I think that was getting um, Meyer fall to them was probably the best case scenario because he's the type of dynamic you know up-the-middle player that you don't get. Those guys aren't high school up-the-middle players with potentially, you know, above average to plus hit tool power and then, you know, at least, you know, average to better def- defense. Just that doesn't fall to the 20s or 30s. You don't get guys like him there. So they had a very un- right. unique opportunity to pick fourth this year, and they really took advantage of it.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember, like, watching the draft, and I, I honestly never thought that Mayer would fall. Uh, you know, to number four, like he was definitely my first guy, um, on like my quote unquote, like draft board, but I never thought that it would, he would fall. Um, do you think that the, the whole COVID year and just, just everything that happened after that, do you think that that made the draft more unpredictable, uh, than usual? Or is it just, just kind of how it just kind of fell.
0: I, I do think it made it more unpredictable. I don't necessarily think it has much of an impact at the very top with the, those certain picks because um, I think like someone like Meyer has been scouted for years. You know, he was on the same high school team as Keone Cavico's, the Twins first round pick two years ago. And so scouts have a long track record with him and the Red Sox especially because Nick York um, the Red Sox first round pick in 2020 is from the same area as uh, Meyer so they played against each other in high school. So the Red Sox scout in that area um, has seen, you know, had a long track record with him and something they could fall back on um, when he started, when it was clear he was going to, or, you know, when he started to fall. But I think as you move down the draft, it definitely impacted it. You know, you had certain situations like Jordan Lawler going six to Arizona as someone who, because of the COVID season, his high school season was done extremely early. And then you compare that with someone like Khalil Watson, who was still playing like right up until the draft. And so you had, you know, scouts were seeing Lawler early, but then getting off him and then getting on Watson, things like that. Or I think the biggest um, the biggest impact you saw was with the more analytically and model driven teams. You know, the teams like the uh, Cleveland, the Dodgers, the um, and then, of course, the Angels, they just went pitching heavy. And when you think about it, you know, pitching heavy, it's a lot easier to draft pitchers looking at the models and the analytics than it is hitters. And with pitchers, you know, you can get a sm- sample size a lot quicker than you can with the hitting. So in this situation where you might not do as much in-person scouting for some of those teams, or if you did, you know, and you rely heavily on the models, then the p- it's going to be a lot easier to figure it out with the pitchers than the hitters in a season where everything's just kind of messed up. I, I got the, the feeling with the Angels
3: that, um, you know, there was just somebody who had walked into a room and said, don't draft a hitter until Trout and Otani are in the playoffs. And they took it quite literally and drafted 20 pitchers. I mean, I didn't realize <laughs> until day three what was going on there, but that's just how I pictured it, that they were just sick of, um, you know, pitching injuries and not having their staff hold up their end of the bargain and wasting Trout's prime away and potentially Otani's as well. Because that was crazy once it got to 20.
0: It was it – it almost made me wonder if it was kind of like a meme. Like, they got to 18, and then they were like, eh, let's just do it oh, anyway. Yeah. Like, who cares? But I, I do think that if you look at the Angels' like development, they, they just have not developed pitchers at all. They've just really struggled to do that. And whereas position players, you know, they've had some guys, obviously, they the Trout, Otani. Otani doesn't really count, but, um, you know, Brandon Marsh is coming up, and he obviously looks like a really talented player. Um, Jared Adele. Walsh has turned into a good guy. Joe Adele, book's still out on him, but... Versus on the pitching side, it's just they've really struggled. They've had to spend a ton of money on free agency. And, yeah, at some point, I think they just were like, we need to address this deficiency in the system. And between, like, Reed Detmers last year, who looks really good, and then the guys they got this year, you know, I think that's going away towards trying to um, remedy that and, you know, get that depth back in the low minors. Kind of like what the Red Sox did, you know, last year with some of their trades and just getting as much – as trying to gather as much depth as they can on, can on the mound.
3: Yep. Um, getting back to, to Meyer, um, you know, as number one picks go, you know, he was the number four pick, but number one ranked on so many lists. Uh, maybe not the generational talent on the surface, but he seems to have very few flaws in his game, uh, including, you know, his, his great drive, makeup, instincts, and you can just, when you watch film on him, just looks so smooth, um, both at the bat and in the field, and with his arm. Anything that concerns you talent-wise that you know, I'm not saying that would be short of being a
0: superstar, but that could prevent him from even being an everyday player in the major leagues. I mean, there's always things you can't foresee happen, like injuries is the first thing that comes to mind. You know, you, you can never predict certain things. Um, like, of you know, I think Anderson Espinosa is a good example of that. He's one of the most talented pitchers I've ever seen in person, and he's had two Tommy John surgeries since then. And obviously, it's more of a concern with pitchers than hitters. But, you know, there's definitely the injury, you know, fluky injuries happen, but I think just in terms of talent alone, the only thing that is a little bit, you know, a, a question mark is the the reports on whether or not he can stick at shortstop or mixed. Some people are very confident he could. Um, I know, like, we talked to Jim Callis on our podcast, and he said that he was the best defender in the draft, uh, for example, I think at shortstop or best, like, middle infield defender in the draft. And then, But I, I know I talked to some scouts who saw him, and they, they were just a little concerned because he's a big kid. He's like 6'3", 190 already, you know, when you're that big as an 18-year-old. So, the non zero chance he can end up being like, you know, 6'3, 6'4", 225 at his peak. And if you're that, you know, that big and he's already kind of like a fringy runner, you know, that might push him off shortstop to third. But even there, it's the type of bat that could profile pretty much anywhere if he reaches this potential. So, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of upside. There's obviously risk because they're always the high school guys, but he seems kind of have, uh, he seems to have more of a higher floor than your normal high school drafty.
3: Sure. Shelly, we had a question from a big fan of the show, uh, Jake Devereaux.
2: Uh, who is this Jake Devereaux guy? I don't know who he is. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. So Jake really kind of like had a question. Um, so over on your site, um, SoxProspects.com, which everyone should just, just go to every single day, um, there you know, your current, you know, July version of the rankings have uh, Tristan Casas, uh, Duran Downs, Jimenez, and and mm-hmm. for your top five. Um, where do you think uh, Meyer kind of like fits in there? Just just out of curiosity.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Actually, I haven't – I've done more of kind of – I have to work on my rankings, actually. Thank you for reminding me for uh, <laughs> for when we add the draftees in on the next week or two. But um, I think for me he's going to be in the top three. And if I had to guess, my number one prospect is going to be him or Casas for next month. Uh, And I think the, the big thing for me is just his if he can stick at shortstop, which, as I said, it's kind of like mixed reports, but it seems more people think he can than don't. Then if he's a shortstop with a potential, you know, above average to plus hit and above average to plus power, that's just a remarkably valuable player. And I love Tristan Costas. I mean, we've been on him since he was drafted and been probably very, we've been extremely high on him since then and had him, you know, number one for a while, but he's a first baseman at the end of the day, you know, a shortstop is going to be more valuable than the first baseman, even if the shortstops hitting ability is not as good as the first baseman's because of the defensive value that uh, Meyer could add there. And so I think he's going to be first or second. And it's just going to depend on kind of, as I dig into it, talk to some scouts and then probably err on the conservative side and put him second, honestly, but he could be first. It's gonna be though in that top three for sure.
3: Yeah, and do you have any feel as to where he might start the year yet? Um, in terms of, you know, Salem or or in Florida. Uh, I th- have you yeah. I sorry. think
0: he, he's in four Myers right now, I'm pretty sure. And I, I have I think he'll get into some games in the FCL in the next, you know, couple of weeks and then I would expect you know, depending on how he does obviously um, not does, but you know how he, how he looks just getting up to speed game wise, since his high school season has been over for a while. I think I would assume the Red Sox would like to get him into some games at Salem, uh, like they like to do at the end of the season, kind of promote guys to give them a the taste of what they're going to expect for the next season. So I think that is most likely the plan based on kind of the past track record of what the Red Sox have done with their high draftees. Yep. That, that all
3: makes sense. All right. Uh, thanks for all of that. Uh, moving on to round two, Judd Fabian out of Florida, Um, You know, it seemed in the second round, in the same way as the first, that we kind of had a gift, um, you know, fall in our laps there at the 40th pick. But as the past week has unfolded, there's some rumors, and I know Peter Gammon's reported recently that he wasn't going to sign unless he got to a 3 million number, which sounded like, you know... Perhaps some teams behind the Red Sox at forty had promised him, and that was an expectation. So the slot for that fortieth pick is about one point eight six million. Uh, do you think the Red Sox have a way to get close to that three million dollar number? Um, you know, even if they didn't sign some other uh, draftees in the process,
0: I, the three million number is going to be really hard to get to, and it's because of the way the draft structure or the the draft slotting system works. The Red Sox currently. Um, have three point one million about left in their bonus pool, and that's assuming they're going to spend to the full five percent overage, which they will. They've done that pretty much every year. And except with the way it works, you can't just allot three million to him and sign the other guy, and and just you know not sign the other guys. In order to get that full three point one million, they have to sign fifth round pick Nathan Hickey also, and he's someone who also reportedly wants over slot, which is something we've heard and a few other people have, and. If he gets over slot, that's going to eat into that bonus pool to the point where even if Hickey signs for slot, the most they could get to is about 3.6 million, 3.7 million, or sorry, 2.6 million, 2.7 million, excuse me. And that's assuming Hickey's going to sign for slot, which all indications are he isn't. Right. And so it just makes it that the most they can probably get to if let's say Hickey gets 725, which I don't think is likely. I think it's going to be closer to a million. If he's even at 700K, the most they can still get to is like 2.4, 2.5 so it's just going to be they can't get close to the three million number realistically unless hickey signs for 100k which i just don't see any reason why that would happen you know if he's going to take 100k especially since he's only a sophomore he might as well just go back to school so right the the odds of them getting the three million are not close and i think it's just kind of going to be you know this is the most we can offer based on what it is take it or leave it and if as of right now it seems like his side is saying he's going to leave it but at the end, it could all be negotiations, you know, it's th- these things happen, usually they're not very public. Um, but like behind the scenes, this stuff has been going on for a while. And, you know, I think we'll just know, we'll find out Sunday for sure. But as of now, as you said, it does not look good.
2: Yeah, so do, do you think that they would kind of like focus on uh, Fabian versus the um, you know the catcher also from Florida or do you think that they'll just you know give him the give Hickey the money and then just kind of like just take um, that second round pick and get it like next year like do you think that's where they're kind of focusing?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting situation because if they don't sign Hickey, they lose about 400k plus the 405 percent thing, so they basically lose like 500k from their slot. So they could sign Fabian for about 2.6 million, but they wouldn't get a fifth round pick back next year. So the calculus is, you know, and that's assuming he would take 2.6, which we don't know. But if the calculus is that, or you can sign Hickey, sign you know someone like Nico Cavadas in the 11th round, and then also have the 41st pick next year because they would get a compensation pick for not signing. Um, fabian because the top three rounds you get one versus obviously in the in the fifth round you wouldn't i honestly i'm not sure you know which would you would prefer and i, I think you can make a case, strong case that it would be better to have the compensation pick in hickey along with maybe a one or two wild cards after the tenth round than just uh fabian and if you can get you know Kavadis and other guys for slot
3: with the um you know the first round being on its own day do you think that the red sox probably should have had a better feel going into day two you know having the whole night and the i guess going into monday morning to kind of reset their board look at it's really just a handful of players that they would have had with their pick early in the second round you know to better understand how much it was going to take to sign meyer and what fabian was looking for um would you say that's that that's something they should have had a better feel for or do you think
0: the picks after the second round dictated what it ended up happening with Fabian. I think that in this situation, you know, you agents are going to throw out big numbers. They're going to try to get their player the best possible deal. And I think like someone like Jay Groom is an example where Jake Groom supposedly had a offer. I think it was over four million from the Padres in the twenties in the draft where the Red Sox took him twelfth, and he ended up signing for three point six million, which was I think right around slot. And you know, just because someone has an offer doesn't mean that you have to give them that amount of money. And if if they they thought Fabian was the best player on his board, they could have known his number and said, that's fine, we're still going to take you anyway. And, you know, you can sign for the amount we want or you can go back to school. And, you know, right now we don't know. That still could happen for all we know. You know, he might eventually settle and they they find middle ground and he signs for 2.2, 2.3, 2.4. So, I think that they did do that, and they just decided that the talent was worth, you know, taking there. And if they can come to an agreement, great. And if not, we'll fall back on a pick next year and draft where, you know, our bonus pool won't be as high. So it'll be nice having an additional 1.82 million dollars to tack onto it. Because with the way the Red Sox are going, you know, they're probably going to be picking at the end of the first round and some, you know, in the 20 to 30 range, where you're not getting close to as much as you had this year when you were picking fourth. So it's, you know, it'd be a nice little bonus tab to their pool next year.
3: Yeah, and it's kind of hard to look at that
0: in the long run, but you
3: get the exact same pick back, like you said, and maybe in their head they were saying, we're offering this guy, we can offer him up to 33% pretty much over the slot. Um, so you can see from their aspect, and sometimes it's hard in the moment to say, well, you know, well, we don't want the pick next year, we want the player that's right in front of us. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, if they're picking close to 25 to 30 next year and then have another one shortly after that, you know, a year from
0: now, He'll be happy with that so well exactly and that gives you a lot more flexibility because i think you know they they kind of they are really lucky this year with how bad they were last year that they got the fourth pick that slot is 6.6 million whereas you look at you know last year in their draft granted they only had three pick or four picks but that their first round pick alone was worth more than all four of their pick slots for last year and like you go to 2019 where they picked Uh, They didn't have a first round pick again, but again, like their first round pick was 6.6 million this year in 2019, their entire bonus pool was 5 million, basically like when you're picking at the end of the first round, you just don't have the same opportunities. And if you're adding another, you know, 1.82 million to that money, that makes a big difference in what you can do for the entire draft. Whereas this year, you know, they, they, they clearly liked Fabian. They took him there, but they had a number in mind and yeah. And if, if they can't come to an agreement, you know, you have that security blanket of having the pick next year. Some of the remaining unsigned players, and you've talked about
3: it a little bit, Nathan Hickey in the 5th, Nico Cavadas in the 11th, Peyton Green in the 15th, Josh Hood in the 20th, those are just four kind of most notable names, uh, among a couple others that come to mind. Um, It sounds to me, trying to read between the lines there, that Fabian plus Hickey plus Cavadas would be difficult. Um, And I know that, that Peyton Green seemed more likely to go back to school, so... Are you able to kind of give just a feel for, you know, percentage type of chance that you think some of those later, um, you know, Shelly's going to ask about Cavadas in a second mm-hmm. uh, and go a little bit more in depth, but just a feel for who you think is a possibility and who's a definite
0: no? Well, I think Peyton Green's a definite no. Um, yeah. I don't see any chance he signs. He wanted. His number was over a million and he, you know, was someone the Red Sox considered in the second round. And if the draft had fallen differently, I think there was a chance they would have taken in there. Sure. So that's just, that's not going to happen in the 15th round. You know, he's someone you circle. The reason you draft him is you build a relationship with the kid and then you circle back in three years and we'll see what happens. Um, Josh Hood, similarly, there's been nothing that has linked them to him signing and he's just a unique case because he didn't play at all this year. Uh, The Ivy League didn't have a spring season because of COVID. So he hasn't really been scouted since 2019. And when he did, you know, that was what, an eight-game season or something. Right. So he – and he has leverage. He's transferring to NC State to be their starting shortstop for next season, which uh, ironically is where Peyton Greed's going also. So Hood seems kind of unlikely just because we haven't heard anything. But I guess I wouldn't rule it out. If I had to guess, I would say that Hickey is going to sign, Cavadas is going to sign, and I think Luis Guerrero, the um, 17th-round pick – has a decent has a chance to sign also, but I think Green and Hood are definite nose and Fabian is trending down.
2: Yeah, when it comes to Cavadas, like I, this is a guy that, um just as I was watching like the draft go on for like you know uh, about three days, him falling to the eleventh round, I was just like I fell in love with the kid right? Um, (laughs) I mean,
0: he he hit some bombs. So it's a lot of fun to watch.
2: Exactly. Um, Did he fall this far just because he's already a first base DH type of guy? Like why? Why is this type of hitter? Why did he fall so far?
0: I think it's a combination of a few things. I think the first one is just the profile is tough, you know, coming out of the draft teams want up the middle guys. They want guys who have good defensive profiles to fall back on. And he's just your prototypical old school masher type. You know, he's a 20 runner. He's probably, you know, a below average defender and he's most likely a DH. And so that's just in this day and age, teams just don't value that as much as they used to. And I think that pushed him down. I think his age, and um, the fact that he is, you know, on the older side, I think he's getting twenty-two, twenty-three, 22, 23, pushed him down a little bit. And then I think it's also that, you know, there's just so much pressure on his bat and he's got raw power, but the hit tool, maybe it's a 45, maybe it's a 50, maybe it's a 40. You know, if you're talking about a guy who's like a 45 hit tool, 70 raw power guy, that that's in this day and age, that's just a tough fit. So I think it's just the combination of all those factors pushed him down, and it could have also been honestly his his uh, contract demands. You know, we don't know what his signing bonus, what he was asking for. But as a college junior, he didn't have a lot of leverage, and maybe he wanted he told teams, you know, I want this much, and or I'm not signing, and that could obviously that can you can push yourself down as we saw with several other guys. It's usually high school guys who do it, but there are also situations where college guys push themselves down because of their bonus demands. So. It, it, I think just a combination of all those factors caused him to be there in the 11th. But I, I, you know, the Red Sox obviously were very, seemed very happy because they popped in with their 11th round pick, which is usually where you take, you know, that priority guy that fell that you were interested in, and someone you know in the past drafts for the most part, save for Sebastian Keene, I think two years ago, they've signed their 11th round pick. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with him in the coming days.
3: Yeah, I know, in, in my head, I'm thinking there's going to be 15 more DH spots pretty soon. So the first base DH type will have, you know, 60
0: spots instead of 45 right now. Um, but, yeah, you know, it, that's, it's a good point because, you know, teams it, with the way it, with, when you look at the National League teams right now, they're just not enough good hitters. You know, even some right. of the starting guys aren't good. And now they're going to be having to fill a DH most likely with when the new CBA comes in so it definitely could you know increase the value of someone like him but at the same time like the Red Sox have a plethora of these you know first base DH types in their farm system and I think like a good example as we're approaching the trade deadline guys like Pedro Castellanos uh, Devlin Granberg Tyreek Reed are all guys you know have they might not be as have as much upside uh, offensively as someone like Fabian but they're all guys who are probably not going to be added to the 40-man roster and are bat first you know first base out first base dh types and that that type of profile just doesn't have as much value in the game as it used to i'm still holding out hope for joe davis (laughs) big joe (laughs) one of my favorite guys to watch he uh his season in lowell was it two years ago in 2019 was one of the most remarkable things and most fun things he ran through a stretch i think it was you know in the playoffs he had like three straight walk-offs or something but yeah he's he's a he's another example of like that college masher type and kind of get up to the high minors and see what you can do before his promotion, he was
3: something like more than one RBI a game. When I was looking yeah. at his stats on the they, they, I as I said, it. that
0: that position is somewhere that they've done a really good job of finding value late. Like Joe Davis, as you said, was a was a senior sign. Tyreek Reed was a rule five minor league rule five pick. Uh, Devlin Granberg was another senior sign. Like those are all guys that have put up really strong seasons and um, just as, as yeah the masher types. And I think Davis actually homered his first uh, high A home run today. So. that was a fun one so good timing with the joe davis or big joe reference and also my favorite part of it is um him and uh steven scott who was another 2019 drafty uh, unbeknownst to me apparently had a nickname they were the meatball bros and for some reason i just thoroughly enjoyed that when i saw that on social media they were tweeting about it so i raised uh, davis and scott stock even more in my book and i was probably already one of the highest people around on them
3: yeah, uh, Keaton and I had uh, Kevin Domenico, the announcer down at Salem on about a month ago, and he was talking about Joe Davis fixing up cars, and that was one of the least surprising things to me, so Meatball Bros <laughs> seems like a fitting nickname for him. Exactly. Um, all right, so we're going to move on. Just two quick news and notes before we get into the sock system a little bit. Uh, Chris Sale. Heading to Worcester after two Portland outings. He was up to three and two-thirds innings. Nine strikeouts in his last outing. I think he gave up a couple runs total over his two outings in Portland. So, sounds like there's going to be two more. I was hoping that there would just be one more. Um, Shelly, whose spot do you see him taking in two weeks? <clears throat> Garrett Richards.
2: Uh, uh, Exactly. Uh, Yeah, especially after this last outing from Richards. Yeah, I think it's going to be Richards. Um, I mean, I, I still have my uh, hesitance about whether Hauk is actually a starter. I'm still a little bit hesitant about that, but I, I just really just – Richards just needs to go to the bullpen.
3: Yeah, and, you, you know, with the trade deadline coming up and seeing some of the names beyond the luxury tax, which is about 750 k or something like that, I think that we're – The Red Sox are under that. I wondered, you know, if Richards had a good start. He was throwing 98 at the beginning of the outing today. I wondered if he had a good start, if they could maybe free up a little bit of money and move him to the NL um, to make a trade for a different position of need. Um, But it just didn't look good today. Uh, Ian, any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I still wouldn't rule out something like that. You know, you can always, if they're willing to give up a good enough prospect, they could dump his contract. Sure. At the end of the day. So, um, but I, I, I do, I think that, when sale is ready i actually think he probably takes tanner out spot and pushes Houck back into the bullpen where he where i think he could be he, he'd be more effective this season um but i think that richards if they do go down to the five man then yeah you're looking at richards or martin perez and probably richards because i just don't see perez's stuff really doing anything in the bullpen whereas maybe you can catch lightning in a bottle with richards and as we saw you know last year with san diego down the stretch i think he was decent in the bullpen role
3: yep uh, Connor Seabold's rehab has been a little bit shaky. I know that he moved up to Worcester uh, in his last start, giving up six runs, three of those were earned in three and a third. There was some shaky defense behind him, but he walked four in that game and only struck out one. Um, you know, either of you have kind of any expectations for him. You know, if he gets to the point where he's throwing the ball well. Could he potentially be a September call-up? You know, I know they only have a couple of extra spots, but that might be something to see. You know, if they have anything to play with, um, I'll, I'll start with you, Ian. Do you think he, that he might have any kind of role this year, or is it more just a, a depth rotation piece and reevaluate the rotation going into next
0: year? Um, I think he actually could. I, you know, if you look at their current the Worcester roster right now, he's the only pitcher they have on the roster who's not on a re- rehab assignment who's currently on the forty man roster. So if they need to delve into the minors again and don't want to make a roster move, then Seabold is definitely someone I think we could see making his debut. Um, a lot of it's going to depend on how he throws. Obviously his first two starts in the, in the Florida complex league. Um, I, he looked good from what I've been told, you know, stuff was good. And you know, that first Worcester start, I'm, I'm just not that concerned. You know, he's coming off of three, two, three months off. Um, with an arm injury, and it was his first time back pitching in AAA, which is a far, obviously, a very big leap up from the FCL hitters he was facing, where I think he struck out like seven and six guys in his first two stars, something along those lines. So, um, yeah, I'm not too worried about him, and I think that as long as he's healthy, that I think there's definitely a chance that he could be up at some point this year
2: yeah yeah i i I mean i totally agree with ian there it's it's basically more of like a wait and see um especially with the trade deadline you know coming to an end at this at the end of this week we don't know what the red sox can do but yeah i i think that we could possibly see see bold towards the end of the year
3: all right moving on to a couple of You know former prospects i guess duran still has prospect eligibility we're gonna ask about him as well as garrett whitlock and you know whitlock's under 50 innings even if he's uh past the amount of service time on the roster i'm gonna i'm gonna ask bring him up one more time on this show just because i know that all three of us are fans of both of these players uh starting with duran uh shelly kind of what are your thoughts been on his debut so far um you know, do you think he's up for good? Uh, anything that you've seen at the big league level that has concerned you or been any different than kind of what you saw in the minors?
2: Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I really liked um, uh, kind of sort of like what the, you know, the, the, the Red Sox have done so far. Like, they have really, uh, really platooned him. Like, he's not really hitting against uh, lefties. But what he is in the lineup, usually against righties, um, he's hitting second. Do you think that that is a thing, Ian? Do you think this is a thing going forward that we need to like watch for the entire year, or is this just them trying to figure out where Durant kind of, you know, fits in with this major league team?
0: Um, I think that long-term, the he, he does could be someone who ends up hitting in the two-hole. I think, though, that with what was going on with the, the lineup, the Red Sox clearly wanted to shake things up. They, the offense had kind of stagnated before his call-up. Um, guys like Alex Verdugo, J.D. Martinez even were kind of scuffling a little bit. And I think that just in order to get that lefty-righty balance that Alex score likes to have, if you're having Kike Hernandez in the leadoff spot, you want to have a lefty in the two spot, and he's kind of the clear option there um, if you're pushing for you to go down to sixth. So I, I think that was kind of the reasoning for him jumping in the two hole. But um, I mean, I know tonight, like he's hitting ninth against the lefty, and even though he um, had no, you know, noticeable splits against lefties this year in the minors. I, I do like the way they're kind of limiting his exposure because it, the one concern I had coming out other than the defense, but offensively, my big concern was the swing and miss in his game with his change swing. He's definitely added more strikeouts and just his, his contact, his ability has kind of decreased a little bit because. When you're trying to hit, you know, for power, that's going to happen. And my concern was how was it going to be exploited by major league pitchers who have much better command new seeing in the minors? And the answer is, you know, his swinging strike rate is among the highest on the team's uh, strike. As you said, the strikeouts have been really high. And if you look even at like the pitches he's getting, his sweet spot is kind of middle in and down, and he's just not getting any of those pitches. And I think that it's going to be on him to make adjustments. And that's something that he's shown at every level, the ability to make adjustments. But I, I do think the growing pains that we're kind of seeing are expected, but if he can get back and, you know, kind of t- show the dynamic player that he is with his speed, he has a different element to the lineup. That is really nice at the top of the order. Yeah. That speed has been evident right away.
3: You know, there's a couple plays. There was the ground ball second, the other night where he ended up getting uh, to second base on a ball that barely got out of the infield Um, I think I don't know whether he was pinch running late in the game but just balls in the gaps uh, you know he's gonna score from first Uh, his arm in center field fits in with all the other arms they have in center field the way that those you know the number of assists that Verdugo and Renfro and Kike have had out there I mean Durant fits right in with a couple of throws that he's made Uh, you know haven't gotten to see as much you know the jumps that he's getting on balls but you can tell that he has a good eye at the plate. Um, he's definitely, you know, the swing and miss is there. But there are things that I just want to see him him stay up, at least for as long as they can. And I guess we're a month away from rosters expanding anyways. But I think that there are a lot of places that he can contribute, uh, especially, as you said, if they pick their spots. He doesn't need to be hitting second every night. If they get him down the bottom of the order, get some confidence back, especially as they face a ton of lefties this week. Um, I think there's other places that he can contribute, even if he is hitting under 200. So,
0: Well, that, that's the thing is I think that the, the importance of this, having a, even as a pinch runner down the stretch could be vital. You know, we've seen in the past Red Sox playoff runs and in September, the importance of having someone who can run and be that pinch runner and yep. even we saw it this year in that game against the yankees when he came in and scored from second on that little like line drive single to left field that i don't think there's any other player on the team who would have scored on that because he's by far right. the fastest guy so um except for raphael devers who somehow is putting up like elite sprint speeds all of a sudden which is great right. but i um, saw
3: that and found it hard to believe that he's on to <laughs> level but
0: but uh yeah no i i think that he's he's probably up for good and whether it be you know as the everyday center fielder or even a bit more kind of like a bit role where he he's a you know a late inning pinch runner type he's going to add value to the Red Sox this year and then going forward we'll kind of see what happens
3: yeah um so with with Garrett Whitlock you know like I said not technically a prospect anymore uh still under 50 innings so I'm going to consider him a prospect in my mind uh, we've talked about him a lot to me, it seems like the rules are pretty clear for 2021, especially with Chris Sale coming back and Hauk and the names that we've talked about in the rotation and coming off of Tommy John. I would think he's probably pretty set, but looking ahead to 2022, I would love to see him move into the rotation now that he has three above average pitches the way that the slider and the change and they're all moving different directions and his fastball, which I feel like your scouting report and others had in the the mid 90s and is closer to the high 90s at least as the season has gone on movement separation velocity I mean he checks all the boxes for me do you think the organization sees it that way or might they not want to mess
0: with his role since he's been successful there so far um I don't think they'll mess with it for this year I I think um that for the rest of the season he's going to stick in the bullpen, both to manage his innings, but also just he's such an important piece back there. You know, you can make the case that after Matt Barnes, he's the most important member of the bullpen. I know Ottavino is vital too, but Whitlock's been better than Ottavino this year. And um, I think that his ability to pitch multiple innings, you know, they can bring him in, in any situation, whether it be a close game in the fourth or, you know, give you bridge to the sixth and the seventh inning is important. And um that you know, that's what he's going to be for this year. But I think for next year, it definitely, they, they will try him out in the rotation. I don't know if he'll, you know, stick there. Cause that's obviously a big change, but he has all the things you look for in a starting pitching prospect. You know, he's got the big frame, you know, six, 200 pounds or so. He's got three pitches, as Bob said that above average, at least. And I mean, I, I know, I, I know scouts who've gone sixties on all of them. Um, and you know you're talking about 360 pitches good size elite extension good commands like if he was a starting pitcher true if he was you know a starting pitching prospect and when he graduated he was our top pitching prospect in the system and i think that for next year it makes sense to give him a run out in the rotation and see what happens because you know at the end of the day a starting pitcher is going to be more valuable than even a late inning guy so yeah you definitely are gonna i think they try him there next year yeah, a definite shout out to the Sox prospect site that had him early
3: on, as high as I was seeing him on any prospect list. So, you guys were on that early
0: for sure. Yeah, that was that was we. It was you know that sometimes it's helpful to when you're talking to people and. He was one that as soon as spring training started and he was throwing and it was the the reports i was getting were just like irresponsible and it's like this is a guy because when they acquired him he was rule five he was throwing like the reports were he's throwing like 90 to 95 you know which is fine interesting guy but 90 to 95 with an above average slider and a below average change up and then he shows up at spring training, and he's ninety four to ninety eight with a plus changeup and an above average slider, and it's like, oh, okay, this is a completely different pitcher. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and I think that shows that you don't know what's going to happen after Tommy John surgery. You know, it can go both ways. Some guys they're going to get better. Some guys are never going to come back the same. And he's just in. The, he falls in the bucket of one of the guys who he came back from Tommy John even better than he was before. Yeah,
3: um, Shelly, did you want to take the? Uh... You know, Cassius Downs, any input on, on your end or questions for Ian there?
2: Uh yeah. Um, I will have to say that that uh, Garrett Whitlock has been just like one of like the the players that has just been like so much fun to watch because I didn't really know what to expect, but he just totally blew everything out of the water. Um but when it comes to Cassius and Downs, um I, I mean, I absolutely love Tristan Casas Like, I, like, adore the dude. Um, but when he was promoted um, to A, like, his power kind of, like, dropped off a bit. But then he was also dealing with, like, some of the Olympic trials and stuff like that. Um, but then also, when it comes to Jeter Downs, uh, his strikeout rate is a little... I'll say a little bit alarming, but kind of alarming. Um, his strikeout stuff like it's just kind of like gone off the rails um what are your thoughts about casts and downs like have you kind of like uh like rethought maybe what you thought about them like going forward or is this just kind of maybe just you know a covid 2021 type of thing
0: I think it's it's I, I haven't really changed what I've thought of Costas. He was my number one uh, prospect coming into the year, and nothing's really changed with that. Um, and if if he's not there anymore, it's because they they drafted. Obviously, with as we talked about earlier, Meyer could take that, but we'll still see. But I think you know Costas is just kind of how his development goes you know he's not a guy who's going to sell out to hit home runs and i think that's that's something that you got to consider is a lot of guys will get to double a then they'll think oh i have to you know i'm a first baseman i'm a slugger i have to hit you know got to hit for power and that's just not how he's built you know he's he's a hitter he he's his goal is he wants to get on base and whether that be by walking by just getting a single or by hitting for power you know he'll get on base however he can and i think that's kind of what's what's happened this year you know he's hitting 271 strikeout rates around 20 percent which is great walk rate is over 11 percent um which is excellent you know he's still hitting the ball really well and i've seen him and i just think the power is something that's just going to come as he matures you know you got to remember he's still only 21 years old he's uh he's on the young side for double a he's facing advanced pitching for the first time having basically skipped salem entirely and his season was kind of weird as you said because of the having to go to going to the Olympics. So. I think that long term it'll be fine it's just kind of you know a blip and just a weird situation where he's not hitting for power because if you watch his bp it's still there and, and it'll come in game eventually um with regards to downs i i definitely you know it, it, it's not the season is not gone how you would have hoped um his strikeout rate as you alluded to has been really bad he's had you know one good month uh back in june he was good but his may and his july has been really bad and in you know his strikeout rate is up to 30 percent in july four percent walk rate and I think that with him that you have to remember that this was an ultra aggressive assignment. You know, he is he's 20 23 years old, but he had eight I think eight games, excuse me, 12 games in Double A in 2019 and then they just put him in Triple A to start the year. So he basically skipped Double A entirely. You know, if they started him in Double A, it would have been no one would have batted an eye. And instead, he got the aggressive assignment to Worcester um, as, you know, a 22, 23-year-old. I think he just turned 23. He actually did just turn 23 yesterday um, as a 22-year-old. And he's facing guys, you know, I, I've seen Worcester a handful of times this year. And I remember going to one game when they were playing the Mets affiliate, and he saw five straight major, ex-Major League pitchers. It was like Jordan Yamamoto, Jerry Blevins. Um, who were the other ones? There were a couple other ones. But, you know, he's facing pretty advanced arms for someone who barely played in Double A and wasn't known as you know the most refined approach person so i, I think it's just kind of growing pains in that long term I, I still think he'll be fine but yeah as you said this year's has been a little bit of a disappointment
3: looking at gilberto jimenez a little bit i know you have him uh, as of right now at number four the thing that we've mentioned a couple of times is this are the splits between um when he's hitting left-handed and hitting right-handed and from the left side this year, he's hitting 322 on base uh, 37% of the time. And against lefties, when he's hitting right handed, he has an OBP of only 157. Now, granted, that's 51 plate appearances compared to 220 from the other side. So it's a smaller sample. But we're also starting to get into the second half of the year, and he doesn't have a single walk from the right side, and he's striking out 37% of the time. Um, have you. And that kind of goes against what I had heard uh, about his swings, you know, that that his right-handed swing was a little bit more advanced than from the left side. So this seems kind of counter to that. And have you heard anything um, just about how he's looked on on each side and whether they're, you know, the scouts are kind of reconsidering uh, what his better uh, side might be hitting from?
0: I think he's a hard one to evaluate because in the sense that there's very few players who have completely different swings and approaches from each side of the plate, but he falls in that bucket from the left side. He's a pure, you know, slap and go, um, just put the ball in play and play it run guy. And from the right side, he takes a more, you know, a bigger hack. He's got a leg kick. He's trying to actually drive the ball. And I think that it can, you can kind of get caught in between two minds. And I do, well, I haven't seen him this year. Um, but I've talked to some scouts who have, and I think that's kind of just what he's, he's getting caught in between that. He's not facing a lot of uh, left-handed hitters or left-handed pitchers, excuse me. And um, when he is, you know, you can kind of get caught between two minds of this is the swing, you know, that I want to do, but at the same time I'm having success doing the other one. And so I think that long-term it's definitely something that bears watching because I'm not going to, you know, write off his right-handed swing after 50 games because I've seen it be really good. You know, even last year in fall instructs, scouts came back and said, you know, the right-handed swing was much better than the left-handed swing long term. But, um, sure. yeah, it's, de- it's definitely something worth monitoring. And we'll kind of see as the sample grows larger what happens there. But um, I just think that for him to be the player he he has the potential to be, he needs that right-handed swing to come along because the left-handed swing works in the low minors. But as you get more advanced, that slap-and-go, you know, kind of just put the ball in play and run approach is not going to fly as much. And that's kind of the, the long-term concern I have with him is how sustainable his uh, hitting ability would be if all he's doing is just kind of slapping the ball for singles. Looking at a couple of other...
3: Um, prospects who started early in the season at the lower levels. Uh, one has been promoted, and that's Brian Bayo. Uh, another guy is Nick York. Um, I feel like Bayo has been maybe the biggest riser, maybe not in your eyes, but has jumped on everyone's radar, um, you know, th- that may not have been prior to the season. I mean, he was in the Futures game, and I don't think that we saw that coming in the prior to the season although he and Aldo Ramirez and we talked about both of them had a couple of debates on the show Aldo more my guy and I'm hoping that he gets healthy soon but with Bayo, um, were these advances that he's made um, surprising
0: to you or did you always kind of see that potential for him? I think that he, he's a, he's a been a fun one, and I've actually had the chance to see him this year. So, um, In addition, obviously, as you said, he's been in the Futures game. and He's been someone who kind of his stock has just constantly been on the rise. And I know coming out of Instructs last year, we were told that he had the best raw stuff of any pitcher there. Um, his velocity had ticked up again. His secondary stuff had improved. And, you know, he was looking potentially now as like a guy who's thrown in the mid-90s with you know a plus secondary pitch another average one and then he came out this year and he's now sitting i i mean i saw him you know he'll he'll sit 96 98 with a plus change up and above average slider now and i think it was one of those things that he's been on the upward trajectory and then this year was finally the breakout and you know the stuff is excellent um he 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 has that super athletic uh build he's got a strong arm super quick arm and i think the thing with him is just going to be now he's got to refine and become more of a pitcher you know he throws, he can throw really hard and he'll flash three, you know, three plus pitches. But he's got to work on those little things the uh, consistency with his delivery, consistency with his release point. His arm is so quick that it'll get way out in front of his delivery often. He really struggles to command his fastball to the gloves or to the arm side. It's another thing. And then, you know, consistency with his breaking balls, as you saw in the, the futures game, if you watched it, you know, he was spiking his slider into the dirt. And when I've seen him, he's had a lot of trouble landing it for strikes. Um, and so that it's just you know it's just going to be consistency in command with him but on raw stuff alone it's he's among you know the probably the most talented pitcher in the system it's just refining those aspects of his game will be key to reaching a ceiling
2: Yeah yeah Bayo has really been really excited like I I you know I I always try to like look at the box scores and try to get um, some some video when when he's pitching Um, But there's two other pitches that I really, really kind of like uh, I would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, Chris Murphy who has been, I I have been, you know, kind of just a fan of his since he was drafted. Um, Basically because when, you know, he's in college he, you know, was really struggling with the walks. And then when he came uh, after he was drafted, like the walks kind of like decreased. But he's kind of gone back a little bit more to the walks but he's he's looked pretty good um but then also uh groom who you know needs to be added to the 40 band this year i didn't know where he kind of f- fell in uh prior to this year but he has looked really good like with his last four five six starts um what are your thoughts about groom and murphy
0: Yeah, you're right. They're two of the guys who, who have definitely had impressive seasons. I, mean, I think starting with Murphy, as you said, it's going to come down to the command and the control with him. Um, his stuff has improved. He's now up to 99. He's sitting, you know, mid 90s. He's got the set. He's got, you know, his secondaries aren't great. It's, it's mostly probably closer to average secondaries than uh, true plus. I think his best secondary to me is his change up, but it's still more of like an average pitch, but it's just going to come down, as you said, you know, the walks He he's he's walking just too many guys for my liking. And when your command is off, he's given up 16 home runs and 13 starts this year. And that's, you know, when when you're putting guys on base and then giving up home runs, that's a bad, you know, bad recipe. The, when you get up into the high minors. So those are the areas of his game. He's going to have to improve on, but he can miss bats. And I think at worst case, you're looking at someone who could be a middle reliever Um, because the scouts I talked to were pretty split. You know, there there's definitely a lot of reliever buzz with him because of the command and then the lack of like a true plus secondary pitch. Um, and then with Groom, as you said, yeah, he's in, he's in the best stretch of his career. He's obviously, you know, taken a few. He's been out for a few weeks as he had the birth, birth of his first uh, child recently. But with him, it's health is what I want to see. You know, I, 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 the results are great, um, obviously, but he just needs to stay healthy. His career iron innings coming into the year, I think, was around like 50. And he's just, you know, he's never made it through a full season. And if he can do that, I think that's the most important part of his development. Um, because on the field, his stuff has been a little inconsistent. His velocity has been mostly in the low 90s, um, which is down a little bit than what he used to be. Um, His secondary pitches, though, he's thrown his changeup and his slider a lot more than he used to, which is a very positive part of his development because he's still got that big overhand curveball. And so, you know, I don't know if the ceiling is as high as we thought it once was, but you're looking at a guy, you know, four-pitch guy, um, with with some, with an above average, at least one plus secondary pitch, that that's someone you could see in the back end of a rotation. But it's just going to be about staying healthy for him long term.
3: In a pitcher that is at Double A, uh, and I'm going to focus on a couple other pitchers here. We'll keep the the theme the same. Joshua Winkowski, who came over in the Benintendi trade, and he seems to have risen in your prospect rankings at the site as much as anybody. He's up in your top 15 prior to. Uh, the most recent draft, his strikeout numbers aren't that high. He has 57 strikeouts in 69 innings, but in the couple starts I've seen with him, he really seemed to keep the ball down. Um, had multiple, you know, breaking ball, off-speed pitches that were down in the zone. It seemed like his location was good. Um, what has been, you know, the biggest catalyst for Winkowski to move up in your rankings since the beginning of the season?
0: Um, I I think it's just that when we it's hard when guys get acquired via trade, where to rank them, because especially coming after last season, because guys like Winkowski, there was nothing on them from last season. So, you know, if I'm getting reports from 2019, as we saw Garrett Willock, I think is the best example of this. Things can really change. And so with Winkowski, he was when we when we when the Red Sox acquired him, we didn't really have a good feel for where to rank him. And now I think it was more of just like correcting um, getting him up in the top 20 because i think he's a definite major leaguer you know i'm not sold it's as a starter i think it might be as a bulk reliever and i think he could be very effective in that role and i think the reasoning behind that is he's just an interesting pitcher his fastball is you know low 90s 92 94 he can get up to 94 96 you know in short bursts but he doesn't really hold his velo over games and but as you said he, he's someone who who really likes to pitch down in the zone um gets a lot of contact, a lot of weak contact is kind of his goal. And he's not really trying to miss bats with his fastball. I know when I saw him, I think he got one swinging strike with his fastball, but he had 16 with his slider. And that his breaking ball is, their slider is, is, you know, that's the swing and miss pitch. And I think that's the, the only real above average pitch in his arsenal. Um, and that's the one that he's going to have to use to miss bats because I just don't, I'm not sure he's going to miss bats with the fastball and the changeup. And I think that's why you're seeing the strikeout numbers are so low is that he's kind of right now only got one pitch that he can miss bats with because his changeup too is a very interesting pitch it's like 89 to 91 miles an hour which when you're throwing you know in the low 90s is not a lot of separation but (laughs) but it's like a slow fastball well exactly but i've seen it and he he'll throw some good ones that do have some nice drop on them so it's just he's an interesting guy and he's someone who, who clearly really like thinks about pitching um he he'll vary his you know starting spot where he starts on the rubber depending on the handedness of the hitter his breaking ball shape will vary you know some will look more curvish some will be more have more tilt and be more sliderish and he just really seems to think about pitching and that's what i think i think will serve him well you know he's got that kind of that strong pitch ability strong feel on the mound and if he can just the the control is good he can just refine the command a little bit i think it's more like he can get in as a bulk type but yeah just the, the lack of Bat miss a bat missing fastball is what keeps him uh from being a like a you know a potential starting prospect or you know more of a late inning reliever i think that bulk roll is perfect for him long term and then i think did you ask about someone else in that or no that was well one. i
3: was going to ask about uh jeremy Wu Yellen and i have yeah. two points to make here because one you look at his game log three of the last seven starts or six starts he has pitched four innings and not given up a hit mm-hmm. and in a couple of those didn't give up a walk and uh, i mean that is pretty dominant, although he has a 3.32 ERA, which isn't outstanding. He's had a couple blowout uh, outings, but if you look at his game log, he has really uh, had way more good than bad. Um, Mm -hmm. But I haven't been able to see Wu Yelland. I know he was a fourth-round pick last year. I wonder what your thoughts were on him. And then my second point, which is my biggest pet peeve about the minor leagues, is if... These starters are going to go three or four innings. I think the scorekeeper should have the discretion on who gets the win because he probably <laughs> shouldn't be 0-3 this year. Um, so if we're going to limit starters to go three or four innings, they should probably be able to get a win in a game that, that the team ends up winning. <laughs> That's
0: funny. Um, yeah, Wuyellin's another interesting one because I think that he he's probably a reliever long term. But I think his stuff, he could be actually pretty good there because he's got a good fastball. He's up into the high 90s from the left side. Um, he's got a decent slider and then a changeup too. But it's just the com- the command and control with him is the issue. You know, he's, he's walking. I think it's like 14% of hitters or something he's facing this year. Um, uh, excuse me, 13% of the hitters he's facing this year. He's not giving sure. up a lot of hits, but... You know, and he's striking out a ton of guys, but it's just the walks of the issue. And I think he's not going to have enough fastball command in order to be uh, a starting pitcher long-term. But I think he could be actually a really good reliever. Um, and and that, that's kind of the consensus from scouts I've talked to who have seen him this year is they think that the bullpen will be his ultimate destination, but that he could be pretty good in there.
3: Awesome. Shelly, I kind of hijacked the last few minutes. Any uh, remaining prospects that that you wanted to ask about while we have Ian on here down the stretch? I know we're getting up close to an hour, so thanks for giving us
0: so much of your time today, Ian. Oh, no problem. It's great to talk to you guys. It's always fun talking about the Red Sox and the farm system. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Thanks, Ian, for you know actually being able to uh, talk to you. I listen to the uh, you know Sox prospects uh, podcast all the time, so this is like awesome for me. Um, but there's one other guy that I just kind of wanted to get your kind of like thoughts about, uh, Brandon Bernacci. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, you know, the, the complex league just started, like he's only played just like a, you know, a handful of games, you know, maybe two handfuls of games. Um, but his average is down, but he's still walking a lot, not striking a lot. Is this just maybe a small sample size? Am I just getting scared because I'm seeing an average of 231? What do you think about uh, Brandon Bernacci?
0: Uh, sorry about that. I couldn't find the mute button. Um, he's he's someone, I, I think it's just a small sample size thing. You know, he, he's someone that yeah, I think he won 0 for 5 today. And if you take that out and then you take out the first two games of the season where he went 0 for 5 combined, you know, he's hitting three hundred four ninety 475 on the year. And he's definitely an advanced bat. He's got really good feel at the plate. Uh, he knows the strike zone. You'll take a walk, as, as you uh, astutely pointed out. And I think it's just, yeah, just the small sample size of that early in the season, you know, coming before today, or I guess before his last game, he was on like a five-game hitting streak, multiple hits in three of the four games. Um, I've talked to some people who have seen the FCL team down there, and he definitely can hit. You know, he, he's someone who he has really good feel at the plate. Uh, I think just the the, the thing you got to watch with him is he's very small. He's probably five eight, five nine, and not convinced he's a shortstop long term. So when you're you know you know when you're on the shorter side and you're you're not necessarily a shortstop, you really are going to have to hit, and I think that's something that he's going to have to do long term, um, and that's kind of why I wouldn't be surprised if he's someone that he uh if that he could potentially be looked as as someone they could move in a trade um to shore up things at the deadline i wouldn't be surprised if he's someone that teams were interested in because of his hitting ability but also someone the red Sox are willing to trade because they have some middle and field depth at the low minors
3: all right awesome um well ian i'm going to give you a chance uh to promote your work uh your website and any you know pieces that you've had come out recently or um we can look for um, over at Sox Prospects.
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, if you're if you know if you like what you heard uh, come check out SoxProspects.com. We've got scouting reports on pretty much everyone in the system. They get updated when we get the information. I uh, got firsthand reports on games. We got our podcast as Shelly uh, talked about. Uh, we had Jim Callis from MLB Pipeline on in the last episode kind of talking about the Red Sox drafts. So that was a lot of fun. And um, just check out the news page, too. This week I wrote about uh, the Red, the trade deadline, kind of what I would like to see the Red Sox do to operate the team, and then who are the types of players I think would be available. And then um, also going up, I think maybe tomorrow, uh, we have some scouting, firsthand scouting reports from when I was uh, able to see Josh Winkowski, Durbin Feldman, and a couple other guys recently. So uh, check out that out on the news page and check out the podcast and for all your Red Sox prospect needs. And of course, listen to this prospect uh, podcast, too, because it has been a great addition to the Red Sox prospect world this year.
3: <laughs> well, we appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I can't recommend the, the website and the, the podcast highly enough over at Sox Prospects. Um, follow Ian at Ian Condell. Uh, you can follow Shelly at Shelly V underscore six, four, three. You can follow me at Bob Osgood 15. I had a blast. Thanks so much for joining us, Ian. Um, and we will talk to you all next week.